Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. Today, we have an amazing thing happening. We have another Eric Rubin on the show. That's right. Two times the Eric Rubin, the same low, low price. This Eric Rubin uh, that I'm interviewing is not just a lawyer. He's a law professor. And we met on the internet because... He's one of the few people I know who spells his name the way that I do. And what's also unusual is of late, I've really been dealing with creative people and people who do unusual things or are very arts oriented. But today, today it's all law all the time. And it's specifically gun law. We talk about the Second Amendment. We talk about self-defense. We talk about stand your ground. All that stuff that's been in the news lately, and we talk about a couple of very big current events situations with guns. And this is a very important conversation, uh, and I hope you enjoy it. I hope it informs you. And it's important because this is not just a law situation. This is a public policy and a political situation. And the time has come and gone for us to start thinking about politics. We need to get as involved as possible. And Eric Rubin, the professor who we'll have on today, is going to talk about really what the issues are. So I hope you will find this as informative and engaging as I did talking to him. Um, but for now, just sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Professor Eric Rubin. Eric Rubin, welcome to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. And this is one of the strangest and coolest experiences because we literally have the same name spelled exactly the same way. Thank you so much for having me on. I do feel like this is a bit like the bananas um, courtroom scene, Woody <laughs> Allen, in it, you know, interrogating himself on the stand. <laughs> I love I love that right out of the gate, you reference that, you know, Woody Allen is so out of favor for obvious reasons. And I'm not suggesting we rehabilitate him in any way. <laughs> but I have to say that was a great movie for me when I was a kid. I haven't seen it in a long time. That and Take the Money and Run. That that era of Woody was great. But I'm gonna we're gonna just bypass Woody Allen because uh, Eric Rubin. And for people who are confused, um, this is Eric M. Rubin, and he is, as you'll find out, a professor at Southern Methodist Southern Methodist University. We'll just say SMU. Uh, he's a law professor there. Um, and he is far more well-credentialed than I, being an Ivy Leaguer, and he went to a, a great law school, NYU, um, and um, he's younger and more handsome than me, but I will just still do the interview anyway. Um, you started out in upstate New York, right? That's like where you were born and raised, you said? I was, I was born in Saratoga Springs, um, and I lived there until I went off to college, and um, so... 18 years. My parents still live there. I still go back. Um, I spent many a fun time at SPAC for people who don't know what that is. That's the Saratoga Performing Arts Center. I think I saw Genesis there. I've been to the racetrack at Saratoga Springs. Absolutely. That's uh, that's where I earn my money every single summer. I was I sold souvenirs at the at the Saratoga racetrack and then went to concerts at SPAC at night. So maybe mm. we were maybe we were at a concert at the same time. 
Unlikely since uh, I'm 60 years old. You probably weren't allowed at the concert when I was there. I will say, by the way, for people who don't know, I've never had a racetrack experience like Saratoga because, and look, I live in Brooklyn and I uh, have an office on Wall Street and I've seen money. I've seen the accoutrement uh, that very wealthy people have. I have never seen so much obvious wealth as I have when I've gone to the racetrack in Sar Saratoga. Is that your experience too? There's certainly a lot of money there that comes in every single summer. Um, it's hard to tell. Everybody gets dressed up to go to the racetrack at Saratoga. There's a lot of people who wear, you know, costumes and fancy hats. So sometimes you don't know whether it's, it's um, you know, the, the, uh, a party of people who aren't super wealthy, but they just dress to look that that role and people obviously throw a lot of money around and gamble. Um, but there is there's a, a huge influx of money every single summer into Saratoga. And one of the good things about growing up in Saratoga is that that summer influx of people and money um, fuels a great restaurant scene. And so there's a lot more infrastructure and things going on year round in Saratoga that uh, than there would otherwise be. Yeah, the reason, by the way, if people were like, why was I up there if I grew up in Long Island? I spent four years in Schenectady, which is just a stone's throw uh, at Union College, which people who are from up that way know very well. Um, but also, I'll just say, if you looked in the parking lots, it's not even a parking lot. The parking is so overwhelmed, at least in my memory. Uh, and I won't say how long. It was like 40 years ago. Um, there were more Rolls Royces than I've ever seen in my life, all parked like almost right next to each other on the lawns surrounding uh, that place. That's what really got me was how like literally hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars worth of Rolls Royces in one place. Um, maybe Dubai or one of those places has more, but I, again, I see Rolls Royces not infrequently here in New York City. I mean, and there's very wealthy people around here. I, you know, I have movie stars in my neighborhood. They don't really drive though. I think they love living in Brooklyn because they don't need a car. <laughs> anyway, enough about that. You went to the same law school as several of people who are no longer in my life. NYU, you went to Dartmouth, by the way, my best friend went to Dartmouth again long before you. And I used to have a place up about an hour away from Dartmouth in, um, in New Hampshire. It's really beautiful. Dartmouth is just like, it looks like a textbook or like a, uh, a dictionary version of what should an American college look like, right? I mean, was that your experience? It's, it's a gorgeous school. I mean, Hanover, New, Hanover, New Hampshire, um, it's, it's in the middle of the woods. It's a tiny little town. Um, the college is pretty much the town, but it's just, it's nestled in the White Mountains. Um, Dartmouth actually owns um, they, they, they maintain a mountain, uh, the Musalak mountain, and they have their own ski mountain. Um, so it's like this, it's this crazy school, uh, up in New Hampshire, but it's, I, I couldn't have imagined a better place to go. I have been to the golden nugget more than a few times, which is the, <laughs> like one movie theater within hours, I think. Um, yeah. it's just pretty up there. And, and because I went to this place union, very similar, like, uh, a little college, my college was nestled in an industrial town, but it felt like an oasis. Um, you went on campus and suddenly you didn't feel like you were in a city at all. And I feel like 
Dartmouth has that same feeling of like, wow, look at these old buildings, ivy covered people. I, it just had that vibe as opposed to here in the city, like where you went to law school, where, you know, I went to law school just up the street. NYU is this university that is sort of, it's part of New York City. The buildings, you know, it's, there's no campus uh, except the law school looks like a law school. It's one of the few law schools I've been to that's like, oh, that looks like a law school. It's got a beautiful brick building and a colonnade and whatever. When I've been to Harvard Law School to do some stuff there, it's like, this is Harvard Law School? This is very disappointing looking. <laughs> what was your impression? That was, you know, I, I definitely was not ready to go to school in New York City as an 18-year-old. So Dartmouth... A tiny little town in New Hampshire was certainly a better fit for me. I mean, Saratoga, as you know, is a small, you know, it's not a, it's not a tiny town, but 25,000 people. Um, I was not ready to, to go to New York City. And that was an interesting experience. I loved going to NYU for law school um, as a 20-something. I mean, it's a hard place to be a poor student because it's expensive. But there's just so much going on, so much energy. The school is down in Greenwich Village. And the, you come out, get out of the subway any time of day or night, and it's bustling. And I, I absolutely love that. I ended up staying there for 16 years. So love the city, love NYU. When you graduated from NYU, I know at some point, and I don't know the chronology, you were an adjunct professor at the law school, correct? Yes. Yeah. So I, my path out of law school, I clerked for a year in Newark, New Jersey. For um, the, on the third circuit for a judge, Julio, Julio Fuentes, fantastic judge who now has senior status. Um, and then I worked in criminal defense for six years in the city. It was after uh, that, I worked at Morvillo Bromowitz for six years, uh, a, 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 a criminal, small boutique criminal defense firm in the city. And after that, I wanted to segue over to academia or potentially policy work. And I started working at the Brennan Center which is a, this, this nonpartisan institute at NYU. And it was in that context that I started teaching at the school. Just let's be clear. So all the kids listening know, who is the Brennan that the Brennan Center is named after? This is Justice William Brennan, a famous progressive jurist. Um, and his, his clerks wanted to found a center in his honor and they located it at NYU. It's the, Genesis, the, the Brennan Center for Justice. If you go into the Brennan Center, there are quotes from Justice Brennan all over the place. Yeah, that's, that's great. As you know, I went to the Cardozo School of Law. Arguably, uh, Justice Cardozo was one of the first progressive judges or justices of the United States Supreme Court. And we won't get lost in this, but he was responsible for some early decisions that were very, uh, very consumer oriented. We're not even talking about criminal stuff. Uh, just uh, that put the, you know, equal, um, level the playing field for consumers, let's say, at a time when uh, there was really an industrial revolution in this country. And a lot of people were making a lot of money off of poorer people. And it felt like he was trying to level the playing field by creating a whole new area of law and consumer rights, I guess you could say. Uh, and then there's Brandeis. There's, there's quite a few. I urge people to 
uh, look at the history of the United States Supreme Court to give you a sense of why people like myself, and I won't speak for the other Eric Rubin, but people like myself are incredibly distraught about the direction that the current Supreme Court is taking um, because there are tremendous decisions being made that are going to impact literally generations of Americans. Um, things like in the past, Citizens United, and I don't want to get lost in that cul-de-sac because that's neither of our specialties, but um, there are decisions that get made in, the, uh, in that courtroom, courthouse, that uh, I, cannot, I cannot overstate it. Um, but let's go back to you. Um, did you try criminal cases or did you prepare criminal cases? Like, what was your experience of doing criminal defense? Yeah, so I, it was, I, I was, I had a, a, a really in, a great practice and I'm biased because it was my practice, but I, I, I loved practicing criminal law. And I know that you do criminal appeals. I find that criminal attorney, there are a lot of unhappy attorneys out there, but a lot of people who work in criminal law actually love their, their, their jobs and their careers. It's just such an interesting space to work in, so impactful. But I did, I had dozens of cases. I did um, I, I did everything from trial work up to appeals, uh, representing petty crimes, serious crimes, fraud, um, the, the Brennan Center, or I'm sorry, the Morvillo Bromowitz, where I was practicing at the time is on two Criminal Justice Act panels, CJA panels, which means that they represent indigent defendants in the Southern District of New York down in Manhattan, also the Eastern District in New York. So I, I did a lot of um, uh, work for indigent defendants who couldn't afford an attorney. Um, I did a material support terrorism case, um, did uh, like a whole range of things. So it was, it definitely exposed me to a lot of different areas of, of, of criminal defense work. And some of my favorite cases to work on were either those CJA cases, like doing drug cases. And I did a gun case, which I'm happy to get into because that was somewhat impactful and and setting me on my current trajectory, um, but also just the petty offenses. Sometimes we'd have very wealthy clients who were, who, who were, you know, at hedge funds and dealing with SEC investigations and fraud cases and their kids would turnstile jump. And, and as the junior attorney, the partner calls you up and says, you've got to go get him out of jail and then handle this case. And I loved that because, you know, as, as a junior attorney, being able to go into, going to court and actually do anything is, uh, is a thrill. You know, it's interesting. I started as an attorney doing insurance defense work. And what was great was pretty early, I was in court all the time. And I was doing depositions and discovery. And I really got my feet wet up and doing jury trials, which at a fairly young age, which is very unusual for attorneys to be able to do. But then when you talk about the job satisfaction of what we do, um, and it's half of what I do, the other half being showbiz stuff. But um, I quickly, once I learned the ropes and felt comfortable in courtrooms and depositions and such, I really had no joy in trying to save money for giant insurance companies. And it was very rare that I felt like I was making any kind of difference. And I don't want to sound Pollyanna, but the reality is a lot of us got into this because we thought we could make a difference. I mean, we like to, you know, have some money and a nice apartment and what have you. But ultimately what drives us is really being able to do something we're proud of and that 
we can see that we made somebody's life better or prevented it from getting worse. You know, like clients I have who have prevented from getting deported as a result of some old stupid case they pleaded guilty to, they didn't understand the immigration consequences. And now they're going to be sent back to Brazil where they might be, you know, trafficked, um, which is where they ran away from. Things like that I feel fantastic about. Um, and so I, I, I hear what you're saying completely. Um, the guns thing. I mean, that's really your bailiwick. That is your area of expertise to the point where for, I, I find it fascinating that you are in the heart of what I consider gun country in Texas. Texas is an open carry state, correct? It is. Yes, it is. I mean, there's a lot of it, open carry. It's, it's, in, it's in every carry, you know, carry in every way state. <laughs> well, what's, what's interesting is back when I was in publishing, I went to Texas. This is not that long ago. I went to some kind of book convention, some writers and agents. I was an agent. And the guy who picked me up, he's like, hey, you want to do something fun? Do you want to go shooting? And what a lot of people wouldn't guess about this Jewish kid from Long Island is my father was an avid uh, marksman. So I grew up with guns. And I have had a healthy respect for them. My father made sure that I knew all about gun safety. I owned a rifle as a kid. And he ultimately let me uh, fire his pistol when I was much older, well, one of his pistols, he had quite a few. And so uh, I understood things like, you know, don't, don't just point that thing anywhere, <laughs> you know? And um, when you're handed a gun, if anyone ever hands me a gun, the first thing I do is I make sure there's not a live round in it. Like I will, and for people who don't know what that means, you know, revolvers are pretty easy to figure out. And I'm sure you're familiar with all these mechanics of this sort of thing. When you have a semi-automatic weapon, which is just about everything these days, that you slide back the slide, you make sure, people don't understand you should treat a gun as if it's ready to fire. You can't assume that anything is safe. Anyway, I, I don't wanna get, I, I get off on tangents about gun safety because people, oh my God, gun safety, is crucial in this country and everybody's talking about their rights but they're not talking about their responsibilities all right so anyway i went shooting with this guy and when i used to go shooting with my dad uh, in new york we have very strict carrying rules and he had to keep his gun in a locked box in the car until we went to the range and then he could unlock it he was not allowed i don't think he could carry a gun on him at that time in texas the guy pulls up to the range and he opens up the compartment between the two of us in his pickup truck. Sorry, it's just true. <laughs> and he's got his gun in there, in the holster, just like ready to rock and roll. I'm like, holy crap. Now, I had that experience, by the way, in Arizona, just as a complete sideline. I was in the Phoenix area. I went into a restaurant and they had a sign, please leave your guns in your cars. I was like, is that a joke? Or is that? No, that's real. They don't want guns in the restaurant. Like, People who don't live, who live on the coast like us, or I don't live in America, I live in Brooklyn. They don't know what America is like. Do you want to speak to that? You look well, like you want to say something. It's definitely, um, it, it is eye-opening to live in different parts of the world, especially if you're spending a lot of time in New York City. It's a bit of a bubble, you know, relative to the way a lot of the rest of the country um, works. I mean, I, so I'm from upstate New York and there was a gun culture up there. And 
there, you, you drive not too far from Saratoga Springs and everybody still has signs on their lawns with SAFE Act, which is the, um, the law that, the, that New York passed um, after the Sandy Hook shooting to ban AR-15 style rifles, what are known as assault rifles. And people are still protesting that 2012 law in upstate New York. Um, and, and so it's a different, and, and I grew up, I, I didn't have guns in my house, but I had family who had guns and I had fired guns and I, a lot of my friends did. It's more of a hunting culture um, and target shooting culture. It's not, it's, you know, when I was growing up, at least it wasn't, uh, a, a, you know, a robust muscular carry guns in case a stranger attacks you self-defense type culture. Um, but it is interesting when, when we moved down here to Dallas, um, one of the, the first experiences I had was I needed to buy a bigger, you know, I, I needed to buy a car. And so I, I went to, we, we picked out a car and there we're going through the, the, the sale process. And, you know, they, if, if you've ever bought a car, you know, that when you sit down at the table, they, they try to upsell you on all of these extra insurances and everything else. And one of the features of the insurance that they really tried to upsell me on was upholstery protection. And the way that this was rationalized was if you're open carrying your gun, it will rub into the seat and there will be a hole in the upholstery. And this coverage can help you fix the upholstery. And it's just like the sort of conversation you could never imagine happening if you're living in New York City and you go to buy a car. But it's just par for the course, you know, it, it's, it, it'd be more, it, it'd be more common. There's more guns, more people grow up with them. There's a, it's, it's cultural for a lot of people. It's not even a red blue issue down here. It's just, it's just a different culture. Absolutely. I, I think it, you're right. It goes across party lines in certain parts of the country. And Dallas is definitely one of those places because Dallas is one of the more liberal kind of areas in my experience of Texas. I mean, it's not Austin, but it's, you know, it's not DeSoto either. I've been, I've been all over Texas too. Oh my God. So I, I want to back up a sec because I think that people, people who hear about this gun stuff should know something about the mechanics of guns because people throw around words that are other people don't understand. Or maybe they don't even understand. And one of the things that's important about guns is how quickly they fire and how quickly they load because, you know, when we talk about, and I'm going to open up this big horn of dust. When we talk about the Second Amendment, you know, when it's written or enacted in 1789, I guess around then, um, we had muzzle loading flintlocks, I believe. They might have been muzzle loading cap and ball. And people, you can look it up. I'm not going to educate you on those things. But what we didn't have is we didn't have revolvers of the kind certainly we have now. And a revolver is like one of those guns which has like a cylinder and you can put, usually with few exceptions, it's six rounds, that means six bullets. Um, you And every time, if it's what's called a double action, every time you pull the trigger, a new round goes in and can be fired when the hammer comes down. And those are standard police, you see them, you're used to seeing a lot more because they never jam. You can't jam a revolver. If one round doesn't go off, you just squeeze again and a new round comes around in the cylinder. With these semi-automatic weapons, um, that's the kind that, you know, 
people see where the magazine, where all the bullets are, goes generally into the handle of the gun. They pull a slide that loads the first round into the chamber. Every time they pull the trigger, once a round goes off, it automatically pushes the slide back and loads a new round. Again, if that round doesn't go off, the slide won't go back. That's when you have what's called a jam. But every time you pull the trigger, it's one round. What a lot of people and myself are concerned about are what are fully automatic weapons, which means you just have to hold the trigger and it just keeps shooting. And that's what we commonly think of as assault weapons, or I think most people think of it as that. Is that accurate in your experience? I'd say that's an army or military force weapon. Although there are semi-automatic assault rifles, I guess, where you, you have to pull the trigger each time you want a shot to go off. But yes. well, there was that sniper in Las Vegas. <laughs> okay. He killed a lot of people. We just like have forgotten about this guy. He had a semi or two semi-automatic weapons, but I think he had this thing called a bump stock, which basically pushed the gun so that it sort of became a fully automatic weapon. Now, I've laid out all this information. People should feel free to Google this stuff because you get into more details. But it's important to understand the technology because that we're dealing with that right now. We're not dealing with technology from the 18th century. And I think that's an important distinction. I don't know if that matters in terms of the law, because I don't follow it as much as you do. Why don't, now that I've said all that stuff, can you give me some sort of reaction to that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the technology point is, is so important. It's important when you have Second Amendment conversations. It's important when you're thinking about policy questions. Um, and especially if we're trying to look back to 1791, um, when the states finally enacted the, the Second Amendment and try to learn what they understood this to mean back then and then apply it to today, they were operating in a very different world with very different weapons. Um, so the, the muskets that you mentioned, for instance, they took time to load. And in fact, it was unsafe to carry them loaded. If you read about the Boston massacre, when the British soldiers shot into a crowd and killed a bunch of uh, uh, Americans, they waited till they get to, got to the custom house steps, then they loaded their guns. You didn't just walk around with loaded guns and, and handguns made up, which were also muzzle loaders, made up a tiny fraction of the overall uh, weapons. So well, they're incredibly we're, inaccurate. They were the inaccurate. barrel was short. There was no rifling of the barrel. No, it was, it was inaccurate. I mean, they existed, but it was, you know, the, the best the best estimates were that handguns were far less than 10% of the overall firearm stock. Um, and, and, and at the time, in fact, what weapons did people use in a lot of crimes or even self-defense situations? It wasn't guns. It was, you know, knives were more common to use. And this goes all the way into the 1800s. So it's just a very different time, a very different gun culture. Um, now, as you mentioned, we have um, we have uh, fully automatic weapons, and I would, you know, one distinction I would make would be that usually when we talk about assault weapons, um, AR-15 style weapons, usually those are semi-automatic. Um, it's possible to convert them if if you want to into an automatic weapon, but that would usually break the law. Um, uh, fully automatic weapons 
were the, the, the weapons that brought about the first major federal gun control, which was in the 1930s. And today, the, don't you need a special federal license to possess a fully automatic weapon? You do. Yeah, you need a full, you need a special license um, at the time it, 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 to get this registration back in the 1930s. Um, the, the, the price was almost cost prohibitive. And now you, you know, there are a lot of fully automatic guns in the United States, but that law back in the 1930s largely stopped the production. And now, in fact, you can't even manufacture these guns anymore. So the, the existing stock, which is several hundred thousand, is the stock that we have of fully automatic weapons. Um, and as a result of that regulation, and this is interesting because it does speak to how regulation can affect gun usage as a result of that regulation, it really has limited the number of fully automatic weapons that are in circulation and fully automatic weapons are not usually the ones that are found in crimes. But as you mentioned, you know, technology advances. This is, guns are an evolving technology. It's remarkable how much this technology has advanced, how much deadlier and more lethal guns have become. And the Las Vegas example, I think is a great one where you had legally possessed semi-automatic assault weapons. Um, the, the shooter attached a device, the bump stock, which in, in essence used the, the force of every firing to, um, to, to pull the trigger for the next one. And in essence converted what is a semi-automatic gun into a fully automatic gun. By the uh, way, that was nothing short of a massacre. How do you do you remember? I don't have it handy. Do you remember how many people were killed? It was murdered? over 70. Can, can you? Um, so uh, we're, I'm sidestepping a little bit here. But you know, when we talk about law, we can't not talk about public policy. Um, you know, we have laws about cigarettes, we tax the crap out of them. Um, but they're still legal. But we've certainly restricted their sale. Um, and we have uh, writings on the packages, and we've had major educational pushes about cigarettes. Uh, all right, so let's put that aside for a moment. They, we, you know, the South, <laughs> there are people who still make a ton of money uh, by killing people with cigarettes. They would say by selling cigarettes to people who enjoy them, potato, potato. All right, but we as a society have said, yes, we're going to let the cigarettes get sold, even though they kill a lot of people. We'll just pay for those dead people by taxing the crap out of the cigarettes. And we do that with alcohol. Marijuana, in a strange way, is going through this process, too. Um, but let's talk about guns, because one would think when 70 innocent people going to a country music concert are suddenly gunned down in broad daylight by a guy from a decent distance away, by the way. Um, incredibly, well, you don't have to be that accurate when you're throwing that much lead down. Um, there is always a hand-wringing moment. And then the phrase, well, now is not the time to politicize this event. <laughs> certain actors who constantly, and I don't mean Broadway actors, boys and girls, but certain people who say, you know, our prayers go out here and let's, you know, this, this is not the time to talk about public policy. Let's wait until everybody forgets it or let's go to the next incredible mass shooting. We have been kicking the can of multiple gun deaths down the road. And I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. I'm confident because, I, well, 
you you couldn't be more at the most important time of what you're doing. Uh, I, how how do you deal with this just on a personal level? I mean, this is your professional uh, advocation, but what what do you what is your take on the lack of? It's, there's plenty of public outcry, but there seems to be no movement. And there are people whose you know kids have died who constantly try to keep this in the public arena, but they seem to get no traction. Can can you speak to that? Well, certainly not. You know, it, it, certainly not at the federal level. There hasn't been any major um, g- gun safety legislation for over a quarter century at this point, and this is. And, and, and Columbine and Sandy Hook and Las Vegas, none of it actually changed that. So if you're focusing on the federal stalemate, and I think that honestly, I think Las Vegas is a great case in point. Las Vegas, um, there, there's this technology that most people had never even heard of called the bump stock. It is used to massacre all these people at a concert. And by the way, 70 some odd people die, but many multiples of that were injured. And a lot of times we talk about all the deaths, firearm injuries are devastating completely. Yeah, by the way, people, you know, people go to movies and TV. They don't see what a one bullet can do to a human body. Uh, sadly, people like you and I who've handled some significant criminal matters have seen pictures. I assume you've seen, I've certainly seen my fair share of pictures of wound, you know, people in hospital beds and wounds that are introduced into evidence, uh, often in color, often over objection, but, you know, uh, they're brutal. People can get shot once and lose an arm or a leg as a result. Um, It can, people who make the argument, oh, he's just shot here. It's not a vital area. You can bleed out very easily from a gunshot wound. There's plenty of ways to die or be horribly maimed with one bullet. Horribly maimed. And that's the, and, and I think that a lot of times the focus is on the, the number that we hear in, in policy discussions is 40 some odd thousand people die a year from gunshot injury. Most of those are suicides, but a lot of them are, are, are crimes, but 80 some odd thousand people end up in hospitals and don't die. So it's a, it's a massive number of people who are impacted. But th- thinking back to the policy question you had asked about, the, after Las Vegas, you or I could sit down and draft a law to ban bump stocks in an afternoon. It would, it, it's not a hard law to write. Thank but you for giving me credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> the Eric Rubens could write this law. And, um, and, but they didn't, but they, but that wasn't the response. So the response, and this actually um, loops back to the machine gun ban from the 1930s that we were talking about. The response was not to sit down and pass a law that next week banning bump stocks, which have no utility for self-defense, no utility for hunting, solely for shooting as many bullets as possible fast and indiscriminately. Um, and they didn't do that. So the response instead was that the ATF, the, the, uh, the, the Federal Bureau, was instructed to go through a lengthy notice and comment period and regulate bump stocks through the 1930s era law that banned machine guns 
And as a result, and, and this, was, this was technology that the ATF had previously said does not qualify as a machine gun, right? So it was a, it was a tough case to begin with. They, 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 they go through this year-long process where everyone is buying bump stocks. And so now there are a lot more of them. And now that bump stock regulation is getting challenged in court as overstepping the ATF's authority because bump stocks are not machine guns. You said bump stocks are not machine guns. How can you now regulate these through an administrative process because you're trying to fit a square into a circle hole? And so, it, you know, it's this remarkable dysfunction because I, you know, and I would not be at all surprised if the bump stock regulation, the ATF pass ultimately falls. In fact, there have been courts that have come out saying that bump stocks are not machine guns. You don't have authority under the 1930s law to ban bump stocks. You need a new law for this. It's not a second amendment issue. Nobody's going to say these are protected by, well, some people I'm sure will say these are protected by the second amendment, but courts aren't going to agree with that. It's just political dysfunction that they couldn't sit down and pass a law because a lot, you know, a, a lot of the, 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 the politicians, especially at the federal level, don't want to be on record voting for any gun control. Yeah, I think that you, there are so many of our issues that I feel are in place or problematic because we have gutless politicians, people who absolutely do not want to lose their jobs and they will do anything possible. I, I'm sorry, it's just truthful. I, I actually wanted to run for office locally and just tell the truth, knowing I would not get elected. My wife has banned me from running for office, <laughs> which I appreciate because it's crazy. I mean, I live in New York City. Like, this is an insane place to run for office. There's about 5,000 constituencies in every block. You know, it's just impossible to. So, I mean, you know, it would be nuts. Uh, I, I'm just not going to do it. But um, for someone to come out, I mean, we're seeing it with the insurrection, which I'm not going to drag you into, but just as a side note, People whose lives were literally threatened in one day have now, because of political expediency or fear, have suddenly completely rewritten that day in their, well, not in their minds, because I know they know they're lying. They know they're telling bullshit, but they're trying to stay in their crappy offices and they will sell whatever they need to sell to do that. I am raising my voice at the only other Eric Rubin in this conversation. Sorry. <laughs> I am so worked up about the last couple of years. Oh my God. I, I you know, I I know that you know so many things and can cite so many cases. And but I also know that the people listening to this are not gonna want to look up cases or whatever. So I, I'd rather talk about broader issues if that's okay with you. So things like the bump stock. They, you know, am I right? Is it just a complete lack of political will of, of absolutely no guts or fortitude by elected officials that keeps us having people murdered through bad gun policy? I mean, that's an inflammatory statement, but it's not inaccurate. Is that an accurate statement in your opinion? Well, I think one of the, one of the remarkable things that has happened over the past half century or so, and it's a remarkable success story on the gun rights side, is that the American population has shifted to view guns as a majority of the American population. It views guns 
as essential to self-defense and as on net making people safer. So if you look at polls, even going back into the 90s, most people who bought guns or possessed them, possessed them for hunting or shooting. Now, there is a strong majority who buy guns for self-defense. Even and though it's, statistically, it's completely inaccurate, right? Stati I'm not what you're saying, but I'm saying statistically, and we always hear this, but you probably know this better than I do. People are very much more likely to get hurt with their own gun. Right? Yeah, there's a, and there's a disconnect between self-defense and gun possession. I mean, the, the, the circle of people who own guns and the circle of people who engage in self-defense have very little overlap. Less than 1% of self-defense incidents involve the, the, the use of a gun. And likely many of those are actually unlawful defensive gun uses. In other words, people tend to um, uh, think that they can use a, a gun in self-defense when the law of self-defense would not permit them to. Great example is if someone's running away. Okay, this is a classic law school kind of thing. Somebody smacked you in the face in your own home and they run away now and they're off your property and you're chasing them with a gun and you are no longer in any type of physical harm and you shoot them in the back, not even on your property. And you go, yeah, that's self-defense. What do you think, Professor Eric Rubin? I think that you're going to have it. You're going to have a tough time making out a self-defense claim in that case. It, exactly. You know, but, you know, there is one of the things that I'm really thinking a lot about these days, and this is relevant after some of the vigilante episodes we've seen, Kyle Rittenhouse, oh. the Arbery shooting, and, and, and it intersects with gun carry. Is, I, I, yeah, Go ahead. sorry. Is, is that as more and more people carry guns, it does put some pressure on the law of self-defense. I mean, the law of self-defense traditionally is geared towards steering conflicts away from lethal outcomes. Um, and I, I the, in order to, I don't want to get too much into the weeds on the law of self-defense, but two of the basic requirements, universal requirements of, of lawful self-defense is that your violence has to be necessary to stop a, a reasonably perceived threat, and it has to be proportionate to that threat. And what that means, that proportionality requirement, means that you can't shoot a gun at somebody in self-defense unless you reasonably think that you're threatened with death or serious bodily injury. That's so why my, that's, my hypothetical has somebody slapping you in the face, yeah. And then the other part is that you have no choice. Like they're already left your property. You're no yeah. longer in any kind of harm. I'm sorry, just in a law school picture. It's no, it's, it's true. <laughs> we, 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 think in, we think in hypotheticals. It gets burned into our minds in law school, I guess. And then as lawyers, I feel like this is just the, the, the world of, of lawyers. But one thing that really concerns me is that necessity and proportionality, the way that the law of self-defense operates to steer conflicts away from unnecessary lethal violence gets diluted when every confrontation becomes a deadly confrontation. Well, let's talk about the stand your ground laws, which I am stunned by the proliferation of these laws and how they're written and how they're interpreted so that people who like ring a doorbell on a porch could be making their, taking their last breath. Like, can you talk about this whole stand your ground epidemic? Yeah, so stand your ground 
um, has has been in the news a lot, obviously, because a lot of states are adopting these laws. Traditionally, if you go back to England, English common law and the law that was adopted in the United States, before you used um, deadly defensive force in public, you had an obligation to retreat if you could safely do so. And that was the law in most states throughout most of the U.S. history. Um, the alternative is that if you're, and I should say, I'm saying in public because in the home, there was something called the castle doctrine, where in most circumstances, you don't have a duty to retreat in your own home. But in public places, you did have, it, had, have an obligation not to kill somebody if you could safely retreat. Didn't mean that you couldn't use defensive force. You just couldn't use deadly defensive force. Again, this was a way that the law of self-defense was trying to steer conflicts away from deadly outcomes. And what Stand Your Ground does is it removes that obligation to retreat if you safely can. So in other words, if you're on one side of the street and somebody is yelling at you and waving a knife at you from the other side of the street, but there's a lot of traffic, right? And they're saying they're going to come over there and they're going to hurt you. And you could easily just walk over to your car, get in the car and leave. But instead, you stay there until the light turns red. You're there for two minutes. The crosswalk signal turns. You're lawfully where you are. But you know a deadly threat is coming. And the guy walks across with a knife and starts waving it at you. And you pull out a gun. You shoot him. You stood your ground. You, had, you, know, you were threatened with a deadly threat. You could easily get away but you had uh, a right to stand your ground in that situation. Again, we're ridiculous hypothetical. But, but you know what? This is toxic masculinity taken to literally the extreme and, and enacted into law, really. So it's been a major push. It's been a major push to enact these. In fact, if you go back to, I mean, stand your ground, one of the misconceptions about this is that people sometimes think that it's a totally novel thing. People were talking about stand your ground back in the 1800s and some states adopted it. And eventually the US, the US Supreme Court actually adopted it for, fed for federal lands in the 1900s. But if you look back at those 1800s opinions, the masculinity is throughout all of them. In fact, another name, the name that stand your ground was referred to by in the 1800s was the true man doctrine. So it doesn't get more... Um, hyper-masculine than that. But one of the big shifts that we've had is even though this concept of stand your ground or duty to retreat, the, the debate about it goes back, um, it's only in recent decades that state after state has enacted legislation. So this isn't happening through court opinions. This is happening through legislation to remove that obligation to retreat. Now, New York doesn't, doesn't have it. And I'll say one other thing is that the difference between stand your ground and duty to retreat in a world full of guns also gets minimized because you only have an obligation to retreat if you can safely do so. But if somebody's waving a gun, if somebody has a gun and they're confronting you, a jury will probably conclude that you reasonably decided you couldn't safely retreat because you can shoot somebody at distance. Right. I do want to, I want to say that, um, Oh God, I just left my brain. I'm so sorry. Uh, oh, there's also a racist component of this, isn't there? 
Yeah, there's data out there. And this is, I mean, obviously everyone knows that the, the criminal, or everyone should know that the criminal justice system has a disparate impact on, uh, on minorities across the board. And every time there is official discretion, there, um, there, there's, there's likely the bias can, can insert itself. But by the way, there, I like the two Jewish kids from New York <laughs> kids uh, are, are able to clearly see the racial impact of the law. And I, I don't know why, but I feel like this is one of the reasons why we're not really white. We look white, we pass as white, <laughs> but I, maybe it's our heritage. Um, you know, if you have a problem with this, you can write to me at isthatreallylegal.com uh, if you go to the website and you can leave a message there. But I find that there's an empathy um, in certain people that seems to be lacking in others. I don't know what that is, but um, you and I both can understand that even though we are not people of color, we have a sense of obligation to make sure that people are not discriminated against and that the rights and obligations of this country are upheld. And I don't know, I, I, uh, I know there's a little side note here, but I, I don't know where this has gone. I feel like we're in the minority, speaking of minorities. Well, it's it's oh. true. I mean, and especially if you work in criminal law and you see that and you interact with the criminal justice system. I mean, black black men comprise 13 percent of the general population, but 35 percent of those incarcerated. You if you dive down into the data of the criminal justice system, it's truly appalling. One in one in three black men born today can expect to be incarcerated compared to one in 17 white men. So the, the disparities are just outrageous. Um, one of the slides that I put up for my criminal law class is a slide of marijuana usage and arrests in New York City, actually. And there's some data out there on this where <laughs> the data showed that more white people were smoking marijuana, but way more black people were getting arrested and charged with marijuana offenses. So there's this, you know, it, there's anyway, back to. Oh, yeah, but wait, hang on a second. I also, even in the legalization of marijuana, because uh, I have another friend who's an attorney who does marijuana stuff. Um, even in its legalization, there is racism because we thought, oh, well, you know, we'll, we'll even the playing field somehow because, you know, uh, people of color are unjustly, you know, arrested more than white people for this. But when you want to open your own dispensary, when you want to make money legally for marijuana, um, far less Black-owned businesses are being allowed to do it than white ones. I know that's not your area of expertise, but it's in the papers. I mean, it's just in the news. It's, and it's quite obvious when you dig a little deeper. Okay, I just want to say that we are, I'm running out of time with you. I, please finish what you're going to say, and then I have one more question about something I read in the uh, American Bar Association Journal, which I got recently, about Kyle Rittenhouse. <laughs> Just to give it, tee that up for you in the future. Well, I, I guess you know the the <laughs> the point while we were talking about race was just that there, yeah, there is there is there is a disparate impact at every single level, and this comes up with self defense. The data shows that black men who sh who are uh, alleging self defense against um, in, in a case where the victim was white are way less likely to succeed with that defense. Um, well, let's just ask, say, like, if, if Kyle Rittenhouse, and if people don't know who he is, he's the guy who killed three people, I believe, with an assault rifle during a protest. He's a young white guy. 
who the judge seemed to bend over backward to take care of, I literally was going to vomit every day that I watched parts of that trial. Uh, talk about a racist judicial system. But anyway, if he were Black, I don't even think he would have lived through that process. And I think that's, you know, you just have to watch. We could get on a whole thing about racist police organizations. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I'm going beyond your portfolio. No, it's, it's no, it's true. I, I think that I think that a lot of people were upset seeing that um, that that Rittenhouse in that incident was treated differently on the night of and um, throughout the process. Then they then they see people of color being treated in the system every single day. People are getting locked up every day for far less serious things. Um, I, obviously, it's hard to know for sure how much race comes in or to measure it in any single case. Um, and, and I should say, as an aside, I'm really happy that the Rittenhouse case actually proceeded through to a trial and a jury made a decision. And that's the way that it's supposed to work. So I'm okay with, you know, as, as upset I am about that entire incident, most of the time you don't see the justice system even work that way. So this is actually, I think, cases going, you know, criminal cases, people getting charged and going through and a jury making a decision. That's how it's supposed to work. So, um, but, but with respect to race again, even though in any single case, it's really hard to measure what the impact is and the aggregate, we see it, the Marshall Project, which is a great online publication that everyone should check out, did a study and they evaluated 400,000 homicide cases over 30 years and found that killings of black males by white people are labeled justifiable more than eight times as often as other racial combinations. So the data is there in the aggregate. That's, you know, we're wrapping up. Um, Eric Rubin is there <laughs> saying your name, it's hysterical. <laughs> uh, is there anything that you wish we had talked about that I didn't give you a chance to talk about? No, I mean, I feel like we could talk about this stuff till we're blue in the face, but you probably, by the time, by the time we wrapped up, you wouldn't have any listeners. Well, what I, what I think is I'd love to have you back on sometime. Uh, if you'd be willing to put up with me. Uh, interrupting you as often as I do. But I feel like you and I, uh, you know, you deal with this a lot more in an academic level, even though you've, of course, been in the courtrooms. And I see it every day, uh, you know, uh, when the rubber meets the road. I, um, I'd love to talk to you in the future about things like packing the court <laughs> and, um, and uh, looking to- Don't hold your breath. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> looking to amend the second amendment uh which also Don't hold your happening. breath <laughs> um but I, I you know i'm going to invite listeners to write me with questions that you might have for the other eric rubin or he might consider me the other eric rubin but eric i just i'm so grateful you took the time to speak with me today you clearly know what you're talking about and you are not a dull professor I wish I had you as my criminal law <laughs> professor, but you were probably five when I was in law school. So if at all born, who knows? I didn't ask your age. Um, and you're married and have kids. I'm not asking how many, but I see behind you what looks like a kid's drawing. And that's sweet. I love it. Yes, absolutely. Three kids. It's a, oh. it's, it's a joy. They decorate my office. So <laughs> well, that's, that's awesome. On that note, Eric Rubin, thank you so much for being on. Is that really legal with Eric Rubin? I really appreciate you and thanks for taking the time. Thank you. 
I know it sounds self-serving to say, wasn't Eric Rubin great? <laughs> but wasn't Eric Rubin great? I, I really loved meeting him and um, he really understands the issues. Obviously, that's what he teaches. And it's really important if you want to be a citizen and you want to live in a democracy to understand the very basics of the laws under which we live. So thank you for listening. Um, if you can go out and enjoy a lovely Abe's muffin in the peace and quiet of any real democracy, then I suggest you do so. They're so good. Uh, they don't have anything in there that's going to kill you. They're allergen free and they taste really good. You know, it's not like those things that you buy that are healthy and then they taste like the package. No, these are really good. Also, do you like this podcast? Tell people, share it, rate it, and of course, subscribe. And if you have questions about this podcast, about this episode, or any other episode, go to www.isthatreallylegal.com. Leave me a message. I will get back to you. Enjoy the beautiful weather and stay healthy. Get your booster. Wear a mask. Do what you can do to protect every American's right to vote. And have a great day. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.